Today's episode of Growing Pains with David Campbell on the Unsettled Media Podcast Network is brought to you by the It's the Economy Stupid blog. That's David's blog. It's a blog about economic development in Atlantic Canada. He recently put out a Thanksgiving edition on the 12th of this month called The Rational Optimist. It's a Matt Ridley reference. You can get the blog on davidwcampbell.com. On the 19th, that's Monday, we're releasing the Transformational Leadership first episode. We're really excited. This is a collaboration with the Chapman Group. It's hosted by Tanya Chapman, an HR expert in the region. We're talking about disruption, how to unlock leaders, how to transform teams. We're really excited about this podcast coming to you live with episode one on the 19th. We've also wrapped up the Essential Talent Podcast. That was a podcast collaboration with the University of New Brunswick's MBA program. We heard from over 20 MBA graduates about what they think about COVID-19, the skills they're bringing to our regional workforce, and their ambition as they come to graduate. It was the first podcast that we released in the format we're calling a pod pitch. It's fascinating to hear someone talk about their experience in their own words. We loved doing it with these MBA graduates from all over the world with their diverse opinions, experience, and talents. We encourage all of you to check out Tech Talks with Kathy Simpson. We're all wondering what the technology landscape looks like post-pandemic. During the pandemic, we want to know what's on offer for students who are coming in to the technology field in the region. And Kathy Simpson, the CEO of Tech Impact, does a great job at hosting that podcast. You'll find it on all major podcast platforms. Let's get to the show. Welcome, listeners, to another edition of Growing Pains, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to economic development in Atlantic Canada. Today is October 28th, 2020, and Colleen Dontremont from the Atlantica Center for Energy joins us to talk about the energy sector and trends in energy in New Brunswick and across Atlantic Canada. Today we'll answer questions like, what is the Atlantic Loop and why does it matter? Is the potential for an SMR, small modular reactor cluster in New Brunswick, real or just another in a long line of energy pipe dreams? If it is real, how long before we start to see the economic benefits? We'll talk about where we are with the potential liquefied natural gas expert terminal in Nova Scotia and whether or not the new $9 billion proposed project in Saguenay is com competition uh, for that specific project. We'll talk about offshore Nova Scotia and whether there's potential for natural gas development at any time in the future. We'll talk about onshore natural gas development in the Maritimes. We'll talk about the proposed National Energy Corridor. We'll talk about hydrogen and, and is that a real opportunity uh, for economic development and as a source of energy in New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada. And we'll have a discussion about where Colleen thinks energy costs are heading in the next few years in New Brunswick and across the region, the clean fuel standard, uh, Colleen believes, could significantly increase the cost of energy in our province. And uh, finally, we'll talk about what's up uh, with the Atlantica Center for Energy these days and what, uh, what Colleen and her group is working on. So I hope you enjoy it. Without any further delay, here is my conversation with Colleen Dontremont. Okay, good morning, folks. Welcome back. Uh, we're here today with Colleen Dontremont from the Atlantica Center for Energy. Good morning, Colleen. Good morning, David, and to everyone who's listening here today. So before we get started, I wanted to I always ask our um, participants their own backstory. I think it's interesting for the listeners to understand where you came from. So why don't you give us a thumbnail sketch of your personal history and how you ended up with the Atlantica Center for Energy? Sure, sure. Um, well, I'm uh, I'm a New Brunswicker from here, and went to Dalhousie University in uh, in Nova Scotia. And after graduating, I went right into the energy sector, and I was there for 
for over a decade and uh, then went into engineering and worked for an engineering firm. And I really liked the sort of the technical side, even though I have a business background. So me, it's all about supply and demand and, and uh, the business network, customer service, things like that. Um, and working at the Atlantica Center for Energy, when this opportunity came up, I thought it was a really good marriage of um, the, the energy sector and then the technical side and trying to connect it all up, whether it's through pipelines or transmission. And so for me, it really is a sweet spot. Super. So um, I think the very first question right out of the gate here would be around COVID-19. Of course, this is a an issue that has impacted much of our economy, if not all of our economy and population. It's it's a global challenge. So why don't you give us a quick understanding of how COVID-19 is disrupting uh, the economy and related issues here, here in New Brunswick and Atlantic Canada? Yeah, well, for sure. Um, if we look again at the energy sector, it is all um, driven by supply and demand. And with COVID, uh, first off on the supply side, obviously we had short-term supply issues with respect to trying to get energy to this region. Um, I might remind uh, the listeners that all of the natural gas for this region is imported from other parts of North America, whether that be Western Canada or the United States. So we don't have energy security with respect to natural gas. And then you look at the um, the refined petroleums and whatnot, a lot of disruption in um uh, in production around the world. So so that, that was one thing. Um, and then you look at the demand side and all of a sudden huge swings in demand with respect to people no longer driving to work. So gasoline consumption goes down. People no longer flying um, for business and for personal pleasure. And so aviation gas, uh, aviation fuel um, just literally uh, evaporates. Um, all of the cruise ships and marine transportation, all of that goes down. People stop buying things. So the demand side dropped dramatically. So the position we're in right now is trying to determine how is this a short term change in behavior pattern or how many of these behavior patterns uh, become long term and permanent? Um, as an example, uh, with um, MB Power here in New Brunswick and, and Nova Scotia Power and and, uh, and over on PEI be the same thing, where you have people getting up in the morning, getting their kids ready for school, meeting the school bus, uh, showering, breakfast, doing the dishes, and then getting off to work, commuting to work, and then basically very little energy actually during the day. And then in the evening, 4.30, coming home, uh, again, getting getting supper going and doing laundry and dishes and, and uh, uh, watching TV, doing homework. And that pattern has been totally disrupted. So it has flattened out the two demand peaks in the morning and in the, uh, in the early evening. So we're wondering with respect to electricity generation, as an example, is this now a permanent change that we no longer have an early morning peak and a uh, late afternoon evening peak and if so that makes dramatic changes with respect to how we produce electricity because um, it is uh, it's not something that's stored and you need to make it when people want to use it so um, a lot of the businesses that we work with are realizing that this may indeed be a permanent change that people are enjoying working from home working remotely um, and uh, not necessarily wanting to go back to that morning commute and evening commute and, and working from an office. So, so that may indeed be a, a permanent one. So we're, we're checking that out now. Um, and other, um, there's also, uh, aside from COVID, there's also patterns with respect to society wanting greener um, energy. And so that has been a huge push. Uh, from again, from from customers, from from ratepayers, from uh, from voters, <laughs> that they want um, renewable energy and non-emitting energy, and so that is changing policy, and then it's also changing um, the way that energy producers are trying to produce their energy. But with um, with the energy sector, the decisions that we're making today. Uh, will actually be realized in about 10 years. The energy sector is very slow in making changes because it's so capital intensive. We have, um, as an example, electricity generating plants, these have 40 and 50 year life cycles. And so you don't wanna take them down after 20 years because there's another 30 years of productive life in those assets. 
Um, so we have to be looking at that now. Um, certainly energy producers want to uh, reduce their carbon impact, um, but it takes a long time to make that transition. It's a very slow transition and there's an impatience from, uh, from society really in making that happen today, not in 10 years. And then the, the, final, <laughs> the final pillar is who's gonna pay for that? Um, these are billions of dollars worth of investment being needed. And uh, when it comes down to the rate payers, well, they don't necessarily want to pay it when um, when the electricity companies say, okay, well, that'll that'll be, you know, two percent increase in rates every year or ten percent increase in rates. Well, uh, politicians don't like that either. So, um, so this is what we're wrestling with right now. Um, is demand changing permanently? Um, are we going to have to speed up the transition from carbon fuels to non-emitting fuels? And then thirdly, who's going to pay for all this? So we have about a dozen things we want to talk about to you with you today. And the first one fits nicely with what you're just saying. And it's this proposed Atlantic Loop project. And as I understand it, the idea is to invest in a lot of new hydro or excuse me, electricity transmission infrastructure and then bring down a lot more clean Quebec hydro uh, to offset or reduce our need or eliminate our need for coal-fired uh, and fossil fuel-fired electricity generation, not only in New Brunswick, but across the Maritimes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you know about this Atlantic Loop? Yeah, actually, that's a really good summary, David. Um, again, there's a push that uh, all things being equal, if, uh, if society wasn't changing and we could just continue doing things the way they've always been done, then yes, you would continue using the coal plants in Nova Scotia and there's one in New Brunswick and, and uh, there's a very good business case for that. Um, the, the difficulty is that there's no longer an environmental case for that. And so in order to get more uh, non-emitting um, electricity from, as an example, Muskrat Falls in Newfoundland, Labrador, Churchill Falls up in, uh, uh, up in the uh, Labrador area, and then also other areas of Quebec, um, uh, large transmission lines are required. And, and so again, the, the, the issue is not, is there hydropower available? Yes, there is. But typical of energy production, it's not where people necessarily want to use it. Um, it's up in remote areas. And so, um, so large transmission um, uh, capacity is required to the tune of about a billion dollars. As a matter of fact, it's well over a billion dollars. So, so again, it came down to the Atlantic provinces and the province of Quebec agreed that um, additional transmission capacity would help them um, reduce the dependency on coal. Um, however, they really don't have the ability to pass that cost of additional transmission capacity on to ratepayers. So this is where the federal government comes in and uh, the recent uh, speech from the throne indicating that um, they will support the additional transmission capacity from Newfoundland, Labrador and Quebec into the maritime provinces to help them reduce the dependency specifically on coal. So not to raise old wounds here or anything but if we really wanted to power new brunswick's energy system with hydro from quebec why didn't we just sell to hydro quebec 10 years ago <laughs> well there's always options i i teach a course and david you're very familiar with it uh called energy fundamentals for leaders and uh and we just finished the first module for this year which is our ninth year so this is uh this has a this has a lot of sustainability as a as a program and i would invite all of the listeners today to uh to participate in that program um that's one of the things that we look at there is never one right answer there are always all kinds of different things that a government can do that an energy company can do and there are different models uh, as an example, we have Amera uh, based in, in Halifax, headquartered there. And, and of course, there's Fortis up in Newfoundland, Labrador, uh, headquartered there. Uh, and those are private companies that are responsible to shareholders and they have geographic diversity and they have energy diversity. They get into pipelines and natural gas as well as electricity production, transmission, distribution. Um, and then you have the crown corporations like MB Power. Um, that is responsible to the Minister of Energy, who in turn is responsible to voters. Um, so there's all kinds of different um, different ways of getting things done. At the time, I just don't think that 
um, really the communication with the voters in that case, with respect to the Hydro-Quebec sale, um, really had enough time to be fully um, analyzed by them and digested and really get their handle around what would be the implications of that. It may have been a great decision. It may have been, uh, you know, a boondoggle, but um, it didn't go forward. And doesn't mean that it shouldn't have or that it, it couldn't have. It just didn't. And so that that's history. I don't think that any politician really would have the appetite right now to try and revisit that. Um, so, the, so the next is what we progressed to with this. Uh, it was actually called the Atlantic Clean Energy Initiative. And so the, the four Atlantic provinces were working together for about 18 months on how can they collaborate, not necessarily buy each other out, but how can they join forces to uh, share transmission, to look at maintenance and operations and emergency response, things like that. When I say emergency response, like storm outages and, and, uh, and, and helping with that. Uh, and then Quebec joined the, uh, joined the, the party <laughs> in about January of last year and uh, wanted to uh, talk again about supplying hydropower, not just from Newfoundland, but also from Quebec. And that turned into um, a really good collaborative approach that uh, the, the federal government was part of that through ACOA. And, uh, and eventually that turned into um, a, a, a phrase called Atlantic Loop. And, uh, and that's the path that we will be going forward with as of today. Uh, rather than one utility buying another, well, let's just provide electricity from that utility. So I don't think that there's going to be a selling off of MB Power anytime in the in the near term future, for sure. Um, but again, I might remind uh, listeners that that's exactly what happened in Nova Scotia Power. Um, it was It's a very, very um, appropriate analogy where Nova Scotia Power was, um, was drowning in debt, un, not unlike... <laughs> New Brunswick Power, and the, and the uh, provincial government in Nova Scotia at the time was wondering, well, how do we how do we handle this uh, this debt issue? And and they actually spun it off and became a private company, uh, and then Amera, the holding company, was formed. And the next thing you know, it's a forty billion dollar company that has energy diversity, that has geographic diversity, that that has an annual growing dividend. It, it's been a real success story from that standpoint. So. That, that opportunity is certainly still there for, for MB Power, um, but nothing that I have heard is in the near term uh, looking at that. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue from my perspective is why would Hydro-Quebec want to take over MB Power's $5 billion in debt now that the federal government is prepared to spend the money to actually get their power for free into the maritime. So I think you're right, that ship has sailed. But the problem is we could end up with a situation where not only are we importing all of our power and still sitting on $5 billion in debt, but we won't have any of the economic benefits from the actual generation. Because as you know, uh, Colson Cove and, and uh, all of these plants, Baldoon, they're major job creators. They have hundreds of employees. They have supply chains. They purchase a ton of product. You know, they're, they're major economic drivers. Whereas if you're importing all of your energy uh, from Quebec, you get zero of that sort of production economic activity. So that brings me to another related question. And you, you know, with me, I'm always going to challenge okay. you a bit, Colleen, but sure. if you had, if the federal government said to you, Colleen, I'm going to give you a billion dollars, you have two choices. One, you can use it to build nuclear power uh, in at the LaPro site and distribute that throughout the Maritimes. And of course, I understand the challenges with Nova Scotia and the legislation and everything else, but just in yeah. general, conceptually. Or we're going to give a billion dollars to make Hydro-Quebec power uh, come in and, and service the Maritime needs over the next 20 or 30 years. Which would you choose? Yeah. Well, in all things, um, I used to be a uh, risk uh, a hedger and a risk trader in the <laughs> the NYMEX and the and the uh, the international markets and whatnot. So uh, true to my nature, I would say, well, I would hedge my bets. <laughs> I would take I would take it and and actually I would I would do both. Um, that uh, that the energy sector in uh, in the Maritimes is not uh, one or the other, and we strongly advocate me personally as well as the Atlantic Center for Energy. Do not put all your eggs in one basket. That is not a good um, a good strategy with respect to the energy sector. Energy diversity is a very key point of um, and, and key strength, quite frankly, of, of MB Power. 
that yes, you want to have this, um, what we call the North Atlantic loop uh, with respect to transmission capacity. And again, we're speaking of electricity, uh, not the full energy spectrum, but electricity. So you wanna be able to, um, to buy and sell and to trade uh, electricity um, in, the, uh, in the five Eastern provinces. Um, and this does not actually touch on the um, international transmission lines. New Brunswick is, has an envious position of having great international transmission capability into the New England states, which are energy hogs. They really like their, their electricity. Um, and so MB Power does have the capability of selling any excess there. And that, further to your point, that doesn't, other than the short-term construction season, um, and and uh, when I say season, I mean, you know, two or three years of construction for this project. There isn't a whole lot of economic benefit to New Brunswick from that standpoint, the job creation. There will be about a billion dollars worth of um, construction activity to set up these transmission lines, which brings us then to the SMR, um, the small modular reactor um, opportunity. And that not only will that produce non-emitting electricity for New Brunswick and give them the ability to sell it to PEI and Nova Scotia. It will also create an entirely new economic sector for, for the PhDs and the nuclear scientists to be located in New Brunswick, developing this technology over the next 10 years. It'll also give existing uh, small businesses around the province, not necessarily in the southern part of the provinces, but in the um, uh, central and northern part of the province as well, who have traditionally been shut out of the nuclear sector because most of it is based in Ontario, and give them an opportunity to supply to the nuclear industry. One of the advantages of the advanced fourth generation SMR technology that we're looking at in New Brunswick is the fact that it's, it's much less complex than the can-do um, uh, technology. And it allows... Um, uh, I'll call them, uh, again, small businesses, construction companies, contractors, um, metal fabricators to all take part in it because the, the nuclear side of it is, is so much less complex that, um, uh, that it doesn't shut them out. And then the third is actually the manufacturing part. We call it the um, sort of a factory approach where you're then producing um, advanced manufacturing modular nuclear power plants constructed in New Brunswick and then shipped through various ports in New Brunswick um, to the rest of the world. So that's a whole new economic sector. So it's, it is, as you say, it's a lot different opportunity than a one-time transmission loop um, to a uh, perpetual, sustainable um, manufacturing component for the SMRs. What would you say to the skeptics? So it, when the original Pro was built, there was a lot of discussion around building a cluster. There was a center, research center set up in Fredericton. Um, you know, there was this notion that we would, again, become a hub for nuclear energy. That really never happened. We have very reliable power at LePro. It's been a very good asset for the province, a little bit of a hiccup when we did the, the refurb. Um, but we never really got a cluster out of it. Some of our engineering firms have some expertise and then when Sean Graham was talking to Arriva about a second plant, there was an idea of this $10 billion plant, this great new cluster emerging that never materialized. So what would you say to the skeptics now that this is just another pie in the sky and that even if it does go ahead, Ontario will take all the benefit? Uh, Premier Kenny in Alberta is talking about manufacturing uh, SMRs or nuclear energy systems in Alberta as a next generation for them. So what would you say to the skeptics that say we're just a bit player here and we're going to get squeezed out? Yeah, um, I, I would say that they certainly have a valid uh, valid point. Um, in addition to your examples, just in the nuclear sector, I can probably rhyme off another five or six that are not nuclear, that, uh, you know, opportunities that have come and have gone. And and certainly in the energy sector, when those ener when those um, opportunities are gone. They they're gone. That ship has sailed. Uh, and you can look at you know the Energy East pipeline. Well, that that pipeline has been repurposed, and uh, and and that is that is done. 
um, a second refinery um, in St. John that it, that is done. Um, and you can look at, uh, you know, LePro2. This is, I guess, would be the closest we would come to LePro2 in that it is not a, a can-do, um, you know, generation uh, six can-do, but um, it would be small modular, and that's the idea. So, so there is certainly um, I would not I would not downplay that at all. Actually, that we are in a position right now where we have tremendous alignment. I, when I call windows of opportunity, this window is as wide open as it can be. Uh, we have an opportunity right now that we will either seize and it will become something or it will close and evaporate as so many other energy projects have done. And, and I consider those missed opportunities. So um, if the federal government um, makes, uh, again, it, it really comes down to right now, literally right now before December uh, this year, uh, makes a funding announcement to um, take some of the billions of dollars that they have allocated to uh, scientific research and development. Again, this is not, um, you know, corporate welfare. This is not uh, um, investing in companies. This is research, um, research and development. This is uh, scientific um, technology development. And uh, uh, two weeks ago, the Ontario government, or excuse me, uh, the federal government um, made an investment in research and technology through terrestrial in Ontario, um, which is the same kind of uh, scientific investment that is looked at here for New Brunswick. So, if the federal government does indeed support uh, the research and development um, in New Brunswick, then this will go ahead at least to that stage. Uh, one company, there, there are two proponents that are currently based here. They have employees here. They have office space. Um, they have they have apartments and homes. They are it, it actually exists. Um, and, uh, so, so that will, you know, one is, one is very ready, um, to go ahead and start demonstration project. And the other is developing literally, uh, next generation advanced, uh, SMR technology. So, um, they both made investments. You mentioned about, um, uh, center of excellence with respect to research and nuclear power at, uh, at UMB. Um, they've made a $500,000 investment and, and, uh, <laughs> re-energized <laughs> the, um, the Center for Nuclear Research at UMB. And uh, so that has been done. And the idea is, uh, again, when I talk about this window of opportunity, we have now the academic community looking very positively at the, at the potential for educating um, students in nuclear technology, and that is now uh, being funded. Um, we have the uh, the people around LePro um, very supportive of uh, increasing the the R and D that's being done at that site, and we did do third party polling. And uh, around New Brunswick, the closer you, sort of ironic, the closer you live to the nuclear power plant, the more supportive you are of nuclear energy. Um, and you think it'd sort of be the opposite if you were a naysayer, but but the actual the opposite is true because they have so much more community engagement and knowledge and and comfort in how that plant is so expertly run. You also have an established workforce um, and uh, very well-trained, well-seasoned people. Again, that, that plant's been there for about 40 years. So a um, uh, very established workforce. You have the community college programs as well with power engineering. Um, and then you also have a federal government and a provincial government that are aligned with respect to um, supporting SMR technology. You have a utility who, again, has gone through a transition. Both the provincial government and the federal government have gone through their transitions. The utility has a new CEO that's as supportive as the last CEO on SMR technology. And you have international proponents that have already located here, invested money. Um, so it's it's unheard of that we get that much alignment <laughs> for this. So. So I tend to be optimistic that this opportunity will go forward because we have unprecedented alignment of all the different components that is needed for a successful energy project. Now, having said that, I, I would still, again, hedging my bets, I would still have you know one foot in the anti-camp because we have an amazing track record of squandering these opportunities and not moving forward with them. Um, so, uh, so if... I would say that, you know, if this doesn't come through very soon, like in the very near term, um, we will miss our opportunity because the United States was a sleeping giant. They weren't looking at nuclear energy under the Trump administration. They've been very focused on the oil and gas sector. And just in the last six months, they have woken up 
and invested um, well over $100 million in nuclear technology, and they will steal this opportunity from us in a heartbeat. Yeah, and I think that's my fear, but I think you did alleviate some of my fears earlier when you said that at least in Canada, there seems to be a clearly defined niche for New Brunswick compared to Ontario, compared to Alberta. Can you tell us a little bit about those differences? Absolutely. Um, so there is in nuclear technology, um, we have a, uh, a an excellent system, the can-do system. And in Ontario, um, uh, I'm going to take one more step back. There is a memorandum of understanding. So this was a lot of work behind the scenes with the government in New Brunswick, in Ontario, Saskatchewan, and now actually Alberta is at the table as well. So you have four provinces that have worked out um, their piece, their sandbox with respect to nuclear technology. So Ontario is going with what we call Stream One, which is a large can-do, um, uh, complex, uh, advanced, um, uh, advanced, uh, advanced can-do technology. So that is like the can-do six, the next generation of water-cooled uh, nuclear energy, and and they're going to be continuing to refine that and and um, uh, and and come up with the next generation for that technology. New Brunswick is looking at what we're calling Stream Two, and these are all concurrent, not sequential, but concurrent Stream Two, which is not can-do, which is small modular advanced. And this is not using water-cooled system. This is using molten salt and and, uh, and liquid sodium. Um, it's non-pressurized and has the opportunity to actually, as the fuel source, use um, used <laughs> can do um, and and other um, nuclear energy. So, when, as an example with LePro, an analogy for for the listeners is. When you are putting the fuel rods um, at uh, LaPro, it's kind of like using the bark on the outside of a log, uh, like a tree. That's the energy source that it's using, just the exterior service. And then it, and then the rest of it goes into long-term storage. And and for again, the analogy is the whole log, um, which still has 85% of the energy, is being encased in long-term storage. And so that the huge leap with this small modular reactor is to use that 85% of the energy that's just sitting there in storage. And that would actually be the fuel source for, for one of them and potentially both of them. Um, so, so you have a different fuel source and you're actually eliminating one of those environmental liabilities of long-term storage for the nuclear fuel and, and actually using that for the next 40 years. They also have, both of them also have long-term, like right now, um, at LaPro as an example, is continuous refueling. So it, it's always um, fuels going in and fuels coming out on a continuous week-by-week -week process. With these ones, um, uh, once you fuel them, they're good for about 20 years or so. So there isn't the bringing up the system and bringing down the system. It just continually works off of this spent fuel or or new, new fuel as well. So, so there's these huge leaps in technology and, and that's what we'll be working on in, here in New Brunswick. In Saskatchewan, of course, a producer of uranium, they're, <laughs> they're more interested in, in finding a use for this uh, uranium that they want to use. Um, and, and in Alberta, likewise, um, some of the micro, so the third stream is micro SMR, and that is very small. So the stream that we're working on in New Brunswick is about 100 megawatts to 300 megawatts, and you can daisy chain them. Like you can put three 300 megawatt um, uh, systems in to get 900 megawatts. So that's the, hence the modular component. So you could go with 100 megawatts or 300 or even 900. You can um, use them however um, the demand is for the electricity. The third stream is micro, which is just five to 10 megawatts, very small. And, and so again, you could use them in the oil sands. You could use them in remote communities, mining communities. You could sell them to Australia uh, in the middle of the outback so that they have a uh, an energy source. You could use them in, um, um, quite frankly, even in offshore. So for, uh, and microgrid, small um, remote communities as well to displace diesel usage that has to be flown in or during the summer months shipped in. So, so those three different streams, the existing technology and just make it a, you know, a little bit better than it has been. The new technology here in New Brunswick, but is for grid scale. Um, and then the micro, which would be for independent use, backup generators and mining remote communities, things like that. So, so New Brunswick has a very reasonable um, shot at having um, 
uh, new technology developed here that is not in competition with what um, Ontario and the other provinces are looking at doing. We all have our sandboxes. That's good news. So the only other question on that is around timing. So um, everybody says, well, that's 10 years out, that's 10 years out, that's 10 years out. But I don't think it's 10 years out. I want you to tell us what's going on. So right now they're actually spending money, as you said, there's millions of dollars being spent uh, um, right now between ARC and Moltex and UNB. Uh, if the federal dollars come through, there'll be another big injection now over the next few years. But what's the timing? So, so lots of research work, lots of spending uh, on the front end. But when do we start seeing, say, construction potentially on a, on a second reactor at LaPro and then all of these supply chain benefits that you were talking about earlier? Well, it's a it's a continuum. So immediately, uh, money will be spent on uh, continuing the research and development. On uh, matter of fact, there's already you know work being done from an environmental standpoint, environmental permitting, and uh, and looking at how things will be would be uh, located, site site selection, things like that at the LaPro site. So so it's a continuum. It doesn't just all of a sudden all happen. Um, you have the uh, the university and the research components. You have people starting to locate here to literally start the demonstration side. Um, but it, but again, this is not going to happen overnight. It is a ten year um, process. The earliest I think that we would see, um, I'll call a, a you know light switch to cut a ribbon kind of thing and, and start producing would be you know twenty twenty eight. It takes a long time for these things to be. Um, designed and built and tested. And again, the rigorous um, Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission and their rules and um, and, and following those. Um, so, you know, the target is, is looking at 2030 so that we have a completely new source of non-emitting energy available for our 2030, uh, 2030 timeframe. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the money wouldn't be spent until 2030. It means that over the next decade, that's how long it would take for these things to uh, to come to be commercialized, the commercialization process. So let's turn our attention to natural gas. It's one of the energy sources that kind of annoys me because we have lots of gas under our feet and we are now, as you said earlier, importing all of our gas. I think the last numbers I looked at somewhere around 300 to 400 million dollars a year. Uh, between industry and and commercial and residential use here in the province, um, so again that is uh, that ship has sailed. But there there was another interesting project that was percolating along in Nova Scotia. It was an export LNG terminal, uh, a multi billion dollar project to get gas to Europe. The Europeans are desperate for an alternative source of natural gas. The Germans in particular want to diversify and make sure they have alternatives to Russian gas. Uh, so that was percolating along. A lot of people said it was unfeasible because, again, the source of the gas is Alberta or Pennsylvania. And so the logic was, well, shouldn't there be other sites that are closer to the source of gas? Uh, but now I read even this week that there's a, a $9 billion LNG project proposed for the Saguenay region in Quebec. Uh, but that one will require an almost 800-kilometer new natural gas pipeline, whereas the one in Nova Scotia, as I understand it, we've got a huge pipe all the way across the Maritimes that's basically empty right now or mostly empty. So what is going on with that terminal? I understand from COVID-19 that they've put put it on hold, even though they had potential offtake agreements with, with Germany. So where are we with the Nova Scotia terminal? Is Saguenay a real competitor? Uh, and should we be totally annoyed that Quebec is horning in here because they were very green and very against Energy East and that pipeline, uh, but now all of a sudden they love natural gas pipelines in Quebec? So does it ultimately just come down to economic benefit? Well, um, I guess one of the differences in Nova Scotia, certainly there is a private per private proponent, uh, Pyridae Energy, run by Alfred Sorensen, um, and, they, and he's using his own money and the, the money that he is uh, able to uh, secure from investors. Um, so this is not a government program. And uh, and, and certainly um, he is a visionary uh, without question, and he has a vision of getting um, Alberta gas out through the country and through Nova Scotia and uh, and to uh, to Europe, as you state, in particular to uh, with his German partners. Um, so if you um, 
every year <laughs> we do this, uh, we sort of take a, an Excel spreadsheet and, and run the numbers and it, it just uh, doesn't add up. Um, but sometimes energy projects are more than just adding up numbers and they're looking at um, you know, things that we don't see with respect to trends in consumer demand or, or shipping constraints or, or product, uh, you know, product bottlenecks and whatnot. Um, or they're able to capitalize on a particular point in time. Um, and uh, so out, out in Alberta, um, natural gas is very, very cheap. Uh, oil may be cheap, but gas is cheaper. Um, so it was an opportune time for, um, for Pyridae to pick up um, a lot of um, supply for natural gas, uh, literally at rock bottom prices, so distressed pricing. And they were able to secure their own supply of natural gas. Um, and then pipelines, uh, there is now an established pipeline network from Alberta across the country, down through the United States, and then back up again to the Maritimes, connecting literally at Goldboro, where the plant is proposed. Um, they have all of their international permits, their national permits, and their provincial permits. And that is a huge accomplishment right there. Um, they also have First Nations agreements. So all of these hurdles that have been uh, laid in front of them, they have been able to, um, uh, to satisfy. And the fact that they already have their permitting and they have pipelines and they have a supply and they have an offtake agreement, um, it, it's huge. He has, if you look at all the building blocks to putting a, an energy project together, um, he's done a commendable job without question of putting those all together. Uh, while everybody else is saying, how is he going to make the numbers work? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, you have to ask, uh, you have to ask Pure Day. But they seem to have a business case and they continue to get additional investment. They continue to move forward. They have a new uh, engineering firm that's been hired to, uh, to look at the site. Um, they have accommodations that have been uh, you know, acquired and going to be supplied by, again, by local suppliers. Um, so, uh, so that one, that was always interesting to watch and never say never when it comes to the energy sector. So it, it very well may um, be realized at some point. With respect to Quebec, uh, they have huge hurdles in front of them in order to make that uh, project come together. Uh, the Energy East oil project, again, there, there is a significant difference between a gas pipeline and an oil pipeline. Energy East was an oil pipeline. Um, that one was uh, sort of took the opposite approach. It had everything going for it. It had economic reason. It had off-takers. It had supply. Um, the pipeline actually exists. Two-thirds of the pipeline actually existed. It was a matter of adding on each side. And, and they had um, huge expertise with TransCanada Energy uh, at the time, now TC Energy. And, uh, you know, they're world-class in, in building, operating, and maintaining um, uh, pipelines. And yet, and yet that one really didn't even get out of the gate. It, it actually got to the point of being applied to get a permit and, and then folded at, at that point. So in Quebec, it has um, the Saguenay uh, LNG project has formidable um, issues still ahead of it. it. I would consider it right now conceptual, um, but until it gets its permitting, until it gets its... Um, uh, again, supply and offtake and financing for, for $9 billion. Um, there's a lot uh, that it has to accomplish. And, and as we've seen in Western Canada, even when you get the permitting, sometimes it's difficult to actually get something built. Um, there's a lot of hurdles. Uh, we had um, uh, with one of the pipelines, the um, BC provincial government suing the Canadian federal government over a pipeline. So who's to say that, uh, again, in Quebec, trying to build a pipeline, that it would actually get built. Uh, with Pyridae in Nova Scotia, just about everything's already already existing, uh, with the exception of the actual terminal itself, um, which is where the, um, the natural gas uh, offshore came ashore. So, uh, And that local community is very supportive of this project. So um, it, it will be interesting uh, to see the steps that uh, the Quebec government and the proponents behind the Saguenay project take. Um, they hopefully have a very long horizon, hopefully have very big shoulders because they will need them trying to build that in Quebec. Yeah, so I would just say save the whales <laughs> because I think well, the whales are better serviced by the Nova Scotia than the Saguenay. That's right. If you look, you know, you have to come down the St. Lawrence Seaway. And uh, right now the whales in the Bay of Fundy have changed their migratory patterns and they're now in the in the St. Lawrence Seaway. 
it's only 500 of them left in the world and that's where they are. Um, you also have a mating um, and, uh, and calving area at Kakuna in the, uh, in the St. Lawrence River. And uh, so again, trying to satisfy the environmental concerns, let alone <laughs> the onshore uh, concerns, um, they will be formidable to try and get that built. When it comes to Quebec, I'm always a little skeptical because I think, you know, government behind the scenes might try to get deals done. Um, so I hope there's not a huge amount of public funding that would go into that pipeline or that project to the detriment of the Nova Scotia project. Keeping on the subject of natural gas, just a few years ago, the Nova Scotia government had issued licenses for more exploration for natural gas. This wasn't that, I mean, four or five years ago, it wasn't that long ago. And of course, now we know Sable and all, all the offshore gas is depleted right now. Uh, and I think they're even winding up the infrastructure, right? As I understand that. So mm -hmm. maybe not. But will we ever see any gas flowing from offshore Nova Scotia ever again? Well, you know, never is a very long time. I would say in the foreseeable future, no. Uh, again, the economics don't, just don't say, and you can ask anyone in Newfoundland and Labrador how their economy is going right now. Um, and you also have Husky um, and Cernuvis uh, now going together and putting a hold on on White Rose and some of the projects offshore, Nova, offshore Newfoundland and Labrador, which is much more established than offshore Nova Scotia. So, um, so if there was going to be offshore investment, I would suspect that it would be in Newfoundland and Labrador because they have all that infrastructure. It's a, it's a going concern. Um, they've had great success with the fields um, uh, there. In Nova Scotia, they did have critical mass. There was oil, there was gas, um, but it just, um, it just didn't have that, uh, that forward momentum. And when prices dropped, in particular the price of crude oil, it just no longer became economically viable to, uh, to look for oil. And when you um, consider that gas is less valuable than oil, uh, the case was even, even less so for, for natural gas. And then you look at the environmental liabilities of trying to operate offshore for very little return, and it just doesn't make sense. So um, in the near term, the medium term, I would not see great amount of interest in offshore oil and gas in Nova Scotia, um, strictly from the standpoint of expense. And while the price of, of crude oil is down in the you know 20 to $40 range and even up to $60 range, um, Onshore is is a much better uh, much better economic um, uh, prospect, and in the United States under the current Trump administration, um, through hydraulic fracturing, they have a um, lots and lots of supply of uh, of oil and gas that can be um, uh, imported to this region. And out in Alberta, again, lots of opportunity for oil and gas exploration, production, and development there. Um, so to go offshore, again, um, balance sheets, private companies, they look at, at Excel spreadsheets and it, it doesn't look promising. Certainly there, there could be the case for onshore natural gas development. Um, but again, that is a, that is a long shot because you do have the supply available in the United States and in Alberta, you have pipelines in place. So it's a matter of, um, coming up with a, um, a scenario where the opportunity is greater in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia than it is in right now a very depressed economy in Alberta. And that's, that's a long shot too. Yeah, because I guess the question would be, why would you develop a, a greenfield location like New Brunswick or Nova Scotia for onshore gas when you have all this surplus gas at very low prices in Pennsylvania and in Western Canada. So, and you've got the pipeline infrastructure in the case certainly of Western Canada. So and I very guess, supportive communities. Right. So, ev so <laughs> even if you did get social license or support, uh, you know, even the economic case, I think you're insinuating is, is difficult right now for onshore gas. So I guess what you're telling me and the listeners is the billions of dollars of gas we will be purchasing uh, over the next 20 or 30 years or more uh, to service this market um, will all almost all be imported, uh, and that will be a, a loss of income and potential for this region. Yeah, I would I would have been um, you know a huge and still am quite frankly a huge supporter of creating a whole new economic area uh, in the energy sector. Whether that you know right now earlier we talked about the the potential for nuclear energy development here, and uh, and I see the same opportunity for natural gas to actually have 
um, you know, well drilling expertise based here, going from well to well to well and having uh, established drilling programs over the next decade of, um, uh, you know, 10 a year going, going forward. But something would have to change from the situation today in order to make that happen. And I just don't see all those pieces, and I'm very regrettably, don't see all those pieces as being as existing. Um, you have a very depressed Alberta economy. So if you're an Alberta energy company, you would probably, um, you know, invest there and, and go forward there rather than try and start up something from scratch here. And do you have a, you know, a cheerleader for um, economic or excuse me, regulatory changes that would have to take place? And, um, you, you would have to actually import and train all of these staff here to uh, to go forward with that. So so we do have um, you know headwater um, uh, headwater exploration is uh, is operating in New Brunswick and there's a potential for you know moving that forward um, in a in a in a small pace kind of environment, in particular in the McCulley field and and there's certainly potential in in the Frederick Brook area, uh, but it's a matter of um, again, some things changes with with respect to regulation, with respect to gas pricing, and um, uh, and and investment funds being being available in order to to move that forward because it's a formidable amount, you know, in the hundred hundred in the hundreds of millions, not in the billions like to string the uh, the transmission wires, but certainly in the hundreds of millions. It's just one of my ongoing frustrations is around timing so a lot of people and we are all concerned about global warming and we'd like to see us reduce our carbon footprint we've got 2050 as a as a as a, a now a national target to be net zero but the bottom line is we're going to need natural gas for decades that's the unless there's some radical change that nobody sees the electric or excuse me the natural gas utility in the province has a 25 year uh, a, agreement, a franchise agreement with the with the provincial government, with an additional twenty five, if they meet the conditions mm -hmm. of the first twenty five. Uh, I have a uh, client uh, in Ontario, and they're just building out natural gas, local natural gas infrastructure, in the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars across Ontario, expecting that the natural gas will be flowing there well beyond 2050. So this is one of the frustrations is you've got a lot of pressure to reduce our fossil fuel consumption, even as we're laying pipe and infrastructure uh, that, that is, as you said before, 30, 40, 50 year time horizon. So I would like more certainty around w what we're talking about when we're talking about winding down oil and gas, winding down fossil fuels, because then you're more fair in the in to, to both sides of the debate right because right now i think it's unclear to me if you've got a natural gas utility that's got a 50-year time horizon and if you've got industries that are using natural gas as the only source of heat for their industrial processes because it cannot be replaced with electricity you're going to need natural gas for decades so then maybe that would have changed people's minds a decade ago or whenever mm -hmm. about the need for a local source. But when you have some people suggesting we're going to be off natural gas in 10 years or 12 years or 15 years, it's just not jiving with reality. And of course, in Europe, uh, you know, they've got, again, 30, 40 year time horizons for natural gas. So it's frustrating from that perspective, but I agree with you. I think for the most part, the train has left the station here uh, and we need to move on maybe to SMRs or other types of energy opportunity and, and other potentially other other renewable uh, energy as well. Look, we've all, I've only got you for another 10 minutes or so, so I do <laughs> want to go through a few more because we do have, I do want the, the listeners. So this idea of a national energy corridor, is that dead? This idea of, of some sort of electricity, but also potentially oil and gas pipes, like this whole idea of a, of a, of a national energy corridor uh, that's that's you know cited and has the regulatory approvals for to to transmit various kinds of energy across the country, similar to a national highway or national telecommunications infrastructure system. Is that dead? Is that just silly? Uh, you just have to ask Quebec. <laughs> the I think everywhere except Quebec uh, agrees, and I wouldn't say except Quebec because uh, I don't know where Quebec stands on it. Um, I'm pretty sure, though. But um, no, it makes it makes absolute sense. You would have one corridor that has road, that has rail, that has oil, that has gas, it has transmission. 
And that gives you that certainty if you are in the transportation or the transportation of energy, that you have that space and it is set aside for uh, literally an energy and over the road, over the rail transportation corridor. Um, and also it gives you that protection that if you're not in that corridor, don't come asking <laughs> because we gave you the corridor. So you have your space where you can, where you can do that. It makes absolute sense, no question, um, but it involves going through Quebec. So the alternate um, is you can go through Maine, right? And so there was, uh, there's been talk for decades and decades about an east-west um, corridor through Maine. And so if you couldn't do it through Quebec, well, you could do it through Maine, depending on who the governor of the day is. Um, some have been very supportive of that, and Governor LePage was one of them. And, and now there's a, a, a different governor, Governor Mills, and, um, and, and really just hasn't risen to the surface there. But um, you could also look at, you know, connecting Ontario through Maine and, and into um, and into New Brunswick. So um, it, it does make absolute sense because it gives you that certainty that that is where that will happen. Permitting would be easier. Public acceptance will be easier because you have that set aside. And it gives the public the guarantee that, okay, we're not going to be um, looking at those kind of corridors um, outside of that band. So again, rapid fire here. What about hydrogen? It seems to me that that's almost confusing the issue here because there's so much effort to electrify everything, electrify the transportation system, uh, electrify other uh, types of the economy or energy system, but 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 use green uh, electricity when actually use, uh, using electricity there. It seems to me hydrogen comes along and it's a fuel. So you know if you're going to build hydrogen cars, it's a fuel. It's not it's not a battery. Okay. So what's going on? Who is that? Is that viable? I know there's companies working on it, irrespective of the little Gaetan Thomas's little uh, challenge there that he had. But is that serious? Is that viable? Will it be cost competitive, or is that just sort of floating around on the margins right now? Right now, we're at the we're at the very early stages. Um, so if we think about the um, SMR technology, uh, you know, we've been following that for two years, and now it's sort of in the public realm. And I would say the hydrogen is today where SMR was two years ago. So so it takes a long time to get these things developed. But if you look at Korea, which is going all in on fuel cell technology, they have five thousand um, uh, vehicles in uh, in Korea. It is mainstream there now. Uh, using fuel cell technologies for for the automotive sector, uh, automotive and transportation sectors. Out in BC, you have fuel um, hydrogen fuel cell uh, filling stations in BC. So you could actually in Canada now uh, have fuel cell cars. So the 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 interesting thing with hydrogen right now is it has the ca capability um, through electrolysis, which would be uh, as example a windmill when you don't need the electricity from the windmill that it can. Um, actually generate hydrogen and put it into storage. So you have a, a potential source of it. The refinery can use hydrogen um, as an additive into to green up our transportation fuels or actually use it as part of the refining process. Um, you also have natural gas. You can add hydrogen to natural gas and uh, basically green up natural gas and it, it reduces the amount of emissions. Although in natural gas, very few emissions. It is an extremely clean burning fuel. So, but hydrogen even makes it, makes it uh, more so. Um, so there's all these different um, potential uses in the carbon fuel side, as well as the electricity side for hydrogen. And it will be very interesting. You know, we've done this big leap from combustion engines, which we're all familiar with, and, and gasoline and diesel, to now electric vehicles and hybrids. And the next transition will be to fuel cell. And fuel cell are even more um, uh, green, say, than than electric. So, so... You and I are of a certain age. We won't tell the <laughs> listeners what that age is, but we both remember the great battle between VHS and Beta. Yep. Right or whatever that was called back yep. then. Yep. Right, the yep. big battle over what what storage technology would be used for video. Um, of course, that was supplanted by other technology, and now we don't even use tape anymore or anything. We just store everything in the cloud. But is that what we're talking about here? Or do you think these two technologies can live side by side? In other words, you can have hydrogen cell cars and EVs or electric vehicles on the same road, or is one going to win out over the other? 
But I would think that the EV question is your beta VHS, you know, whether they're plug-in or whether they're, you know, hybrids or uh, whatnot. And fuel cell is is the cloud. <laughs> your, um, it's the next generation uh, again. I think that they can all come. They can all exist at the same time, just like we have gasoline engines and diesel engines in Europe. Diesel engines are, um, you know, are are are. Um, uh, the most popular. They, there's not as much gasoline engines over there in the transportation sector. And in North America, the opposite is true. It's uh, diesel is mostly just for, um, uh, you know, for delivery, but most people are driving gasoline engines. So, so you can have different standards and in, in different parts of the world. Um, but, uh, you know, longer term, again, in the Maritimes, we're very slow adopters of our adapters of, uh, of new things. We tend to be about a generation behind everybody else. Um, and so here in, in Atlantic Canada, we'd be very slow to go to uh, fuel cell technology while the rest of the world will be um, adopting that um, and adapting to it um, over the next 10 years. So I wanted to ask you quickly about where you think energy costs are headed. I think you indicated earlier because of COVID-19, there's actually been downward pressure on some costs, particularly transportation fuels. But I know that New Brunswickers in general are pretty uh, cost shy. Uh, you know, when we when we had the problems with uh, increasing uh, NB power rates, that's what generated this, this, this urge or this potential for the sale uh, to Hydro-Quebec. So... Where do you and and we are very reliant, by the way, as households on electricity, <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, much more than Nova Scotia, much more than, uh, say, Ontario, where most houses or a big a big share of houses are are heated by natural gas. So, where do you think energy costs in general are headed uh, in New Brunswick? Uh, in general, uh, historically, we've had reasonably priced energy, and that's allowed industry to thrive. It's allowed households not to spend a, a disproportionate share of their income on energy costs but i think you're concerned about the clean fuel standard and other issues that are that are floating around so what what do you think is going to happen uh, with energy costs in the coming years specifically for new brunswick yeah there's a three different kinds of energy and we're sort of intermixing them but just so people don't get confused there's the electricity side the uh, the refined petroleum side and then the natural gas side so on the electricity side there's a huge pressure from ratepayers and then default by uh, by politicians to keep the rate low. Um, and, and so you get this battle between wanting these new technologies and non-emitting and spending a whole lot of money, like literally billions of dollars to, to switch from um, emitting technologies to non-emitting technologies. And, and yet there's this pressure, don't increase the rate while you do that. Well, well, that's an either or, uh, to like your, your question to me before. Um, so the adoption of non-emitting technology is going to be slower and longer because uh, people really don't want their rate to go higher. The difficulty in, in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and MPEI for that matter as well, is that we confuse the rate by our bill. The bill that we get at the end of the month is higher because we are such large consumers of electricity, predominantly for heating. In Ontario, as you pointed out, everyone is using, literally, everyone is using natural gas. So their electricity bill is quite low. It's only for their lights and their appliances. Uh, In the maritime provinces, it's our lights, appliances, and our heat. If you took the heat out of the equation, our electricity bills are very low, extremely reasonable. The rate really can't go any lower than it is because we already have the lowest. <laughs> uh, New Brunswick has the lowest electricity, one of the lowest electricity rates in the country, and certainly the lowest in Atlantic Canada. So we really shouldn't be focusing on the rate of electricity, it should be the overall uh, usage, and that comes back to individuals. You want a lower electricity bill at the end of the month, start turning off your your appliances and uh, um, and uh, and using, you know, put a sweater on instead of uh, cranking up the temperature. Um, so, so that there will be great pressure uh, in keeping rates as low as possible, which mean, means it has to be, um, it's on the consumer's back. If you want a lower electricity bill, you've got to do something about it yourself on your usage. On the, on the petroleum side, the refined products, gasoline, diesel, heating fuels and whatnot, um, that is, again, quite frankly, the rates are very, very low right now because the price of crude oil has dropped. And since the price of crude oil is so low, 
the actual, you know, you, you may have noticed at the pumps, um, we have about 94, 95 cents a liter for gasoline, which is, which is really a, a pretty good price. We were up there at, you know, buck 30, uh, buck 40 um, uh, during uh, when, when uh, the crude oil was up uh, $80, $90. So, so the price of refined petroleum, uh, the price to produce refined petroleum is really reasonable. The, the opposite side of the coin is the fact that it is now being taxed very, very heavily. So we put a carbon tax on it, and now the federal government has a new tax that they are contemplating called the clean fuel standard. Uh, it really should be the clean fuel standard tax. <laughs> um, they don't use the word tax, so we don't get all riled up. But but it is a tax on carbon fuels, and it um, is about 10 times as costly as the current carbon pricing scheme, the current carbon type pricing tax. New Brunswick alone, um, the impact to New Brunswick will be $1.1 billion a year annually. We do not have another billion dollars in the provincial economy to pay for a gasoline tax. So that should be on everybody's radar to start thinking about the clean fuel standard, which is a tax, and that it was supposed to be introduced in June, and then they um, changed it to the fall. And we're hoping that in particular during the time of, of COVID where uh, businesses are um, have reduced command or demand and, and they're hurting, people have been unemployed and so they have a, a lower ability to pay for things. Now they, the news is talking about Christmas people. You know, it's gonna be a disaster for the retail sector over Christmas. And, and then you add a tax, a billion dollar tax, um, not good timing for that. So um, let me, let me just, so, yeah. let me just ask you to clarify what's going on here. So the bottom line is the federal government has saw the price drop from a dollar 30 to 90, whatever, some cents. And the economic argument is the lower the price of gas, the less likely people will be to switch to electric vehicles or to switch to more fuel efficient cars. So what they're saying is, well, we'll get the price back up to 130 by putting on a huge tax, this cute clean fuel standard, uh, and then that will change consumer and business behavior. But as you said, that huge amount of money, billion dollars or whatever it is, uh, then just leaves the economy. Like, where does it go? Is it being reinvested right back into the economy? Do people get it in terms of a rebate? Or does it just sort of vanish into the vapor? So uh, is that the logic here? This idea that because pr prices for uh, fossil fuel energy have gone down so low that we'll use this tax to get them right back up and start to encourage better behavior from customers and businesses? It's not just on the, the fact that uh, the, crude, the price of crude oil has dropped. It's more on the, you know, the federal initiative to, to further encourage uh, consumers and businesses to reduce their overall energy intensity, as it's called. Um, the difficulty is that, that we made with the original um, carbon tax was that in the Maritimes, we don't have these alternatives. We don't have mass transit. We don't have subways. We are very dependent on refined petroleum for heating and on electricity as well for heating. And we can't just say, okay, I'm not going to drive to work. Well, we could, we could, we just work from home, but, um, but we don't have um, uh, subways and, and things like that. So New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland, Labrador as well get disproportionately affected because we don't have natural gas and, and other uh, cleaner burning fuels. So in my experience, with taxpayers, you get a lot more with carrots than with sticks, uh, but we'll see how that ends up. Colleen Dontremont, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I took you a little over time, but I think this has been very beneficial. I think the listeners will come away from this hour session uh, knowing a whole lot more about energy than they knew before, and that's the whole purpose of this podcast. So thank you very much. My pleasure entirely, and thanks, everybody. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George is engineered by the great Zachary Peltier and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.